Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Hi, everybody. My name is Neil Thompson. I am the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering of the platform is a public speaking course called Teach the Geek to Speak. To learn more about it, you can go to teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Matt Johnson. He is a professor who bridges the gap between science and business. He's also an author, and he's penning a book that examines the connection between neuroscience and marketing. Welcome to Teach the Geek Interviews, Matt. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Neil. Wonderful. First question, where did your interest in neuroscience come from? Uh, that's a good question. So I, uh, I finished my uh, bachelor's at UC San Diego, and uh, there I had the opportunity to work uh, within a science lab. I was working a lot with um, neuroimaging techniques, fMRI and EEG. These are tools which allow you to uh, eavesdrop on the brain's activity and see what's happening, uh, even if the, the conscious individual is, is unaware of these processes. Um, and that really kind of uh, got me hooked. And so after that, I went off and did my PhD at Princeton University, um, 2008 to 2013, and uh, been involved in the field of neuroscience ever since. So quick question I have about that. So you mentioned you got a PhD in neuroscience. And I know that a lot of times when people do PhDs, their idea is to stay within academia. And it looks like you, I mentioned that you're a professor. So was that your idea as well, to stay in academia when you started your PhD? Uh, that was the initial idea, yeah. And so my, my uh, PhD was in cognitive psychology and neuroscience. And at the time when I began it, that was, that was the general idea to stay within classic academia, to go into a tenured uh, professorship position, go into a research uh, teaching position. Um, towards the end of the PhD, I got really interested in business. Um, I ended up doing a, a business consulting internship um, with a consulting firm um, nearby to the Princeton campus. Uh, and then after graduation, I went and did business consulting in Shanghai, China for about 18 months. Uh, and so after I came back from Shanghai, I uh, came back here to the, uh, the San Francisco Bay Area and have, have sort of slowly worked into a, a professor position now, which is, is sort of somewhat more along the lines of a, a classic uh, professor research position. Interesting. Yeah, we, I've spoken to numerous people, actually just recently, maybe earlier this week, people that are in PhD programs, actually, ironically, in neuroscience. So they're doing their PhDs in neuroscience, and they started off with the idea of becoming professors. But then, unlike you, you said that near the end of it, you got, a you got more interested in business. They actually just become more, became more soured about staying in academia. So your story is a little more optimistic. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think uh, more and more, I think uh, firms, especially consulting firms, at least in my experience, are, are interested in the, the business analytical skills that a, a person with an experimental background can bring and have sort of warmed the idea of, of taking in somebody that uh, has a PhD in a very specialized field, even if the, the consulting role doesn't use that specialized knowledge, still the analytical problem solving skills that you get from a PhD and you get from a science role uh, can can definitely be beneficial to a, a business consulting situation. Well, you know what? It's a good thing that at least the places where you worked at saw that saw the benefit of that because I, I see I, I get the sense that a lot of PhDs they become a bit discouraged 
especially after they finish and are trying to find jobs in, you know, outside of academia, they're trying to think, you know, these skills that I that got in, in the PhD program, how can these translate into other things? And, you know, I'm sure you go to your, your career counselor at the school and they might tell you what you could do. And then you go to these companies, it's like, uh, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> but at least, at least, you know, it worked out for you. So that's good to know. So, you know, I, I also mentioned in the intro that you're a professor. So what type of things do you teach? Yeah, so I'm a professor at Holt International Business School here in San Francisco. Um, so I teach courses which fulfill the science requirement in the Bachelors of Business Administration program. So that is our introduction to psychology and neuroscience class. It'd be sort of typical to a Psych 101 class. Um, then I also teach uh, a lot of courses which intersect at this uh, really interesting overlap of, of science, psychology, business. So I teach courses like um, behavioral economics. I teach consumer neuroscience classes, neuromarketing classes, um, courses in, in that general area. Uh, and then more recently, I, I also have been teaching courses um, the long, along the lines of emerging technology, both, both uh, allowing students to be able to critically think and analyze these uh, new technologies which are, are coming out seemingly every day uh, and also to be able to write clearly about them as well. Yeah, that, that's, that's all pretty interesting stuff. So the, the courses you teach, the, the people that, I don't know if you know this, but the, the, the ones that go through your program and you say you, you, you do the, the science requirement for the, the Bachelor's of Business Administration, what type of jobs do these, these students tend to get once, they're, once they graduate? Yeah, so they definitely typically fall within a, a more classic business um, position. Um, so I teach both uh, undergraduates who receive a Bachelor of Business Administration, and I also teach um, students in the postgraduate program as well. So Master of International Business and also the MBA program. Um, so relatively broad in terms of, of the types of roles and positions and industries, but yeah, much more primarily within a, sort of a classic business role as opposed to going into a, a science position. Well, the question that I... I was I, I forgot to ask but I, I'll ask it now so I mentioned that I know some PhD students that are now a bit discouraged about their job prospects you know going out of school and trying to get jobs in the industry and some of them might have even kind of regretted getting their PhDs at all do you regret getting your PhD no not at all I think that was probably one of the best decisions that I uh, that I ever made um, I think both in terms of, of the opportunities that it opened up for me in terms of, of research roles and, and teaching roles and research roles. Um, it, it's really difficult, but not impossible to be able to be in a research position without a PhD. Um, and then the other reason is I, I just love the actual experience of getting the PhD. Um, I've always loved to learn. I'm one of those people that really likes being in libraries. Um, so when you're doing your PhD, you, it's, it's sort of this dedicated time in your life where you're, you're not working, you're not having to worry about this, um, you're, you're teaching a little bit, you're doing research, and you're very focused on a very, very niche topic, and you're, you're diving into the depths of that topic. And so uh, for me, that was just a very, very rewarding experience. Well, it's a good thing that you looked at it that way, because now see if you can do it over again anyway. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. I can't, can't go back now, so uh, yeah, yeah me as well. Damn right. Well, you know, I also mentioned in the intro that you're writing a book. So what's your book about and what was the motivation for, for writing it and what do you hope people get out of it? Yeah. Um, so the book is called Blindsight, The Mostly Hidden Ways Marketing Reshapes Your Brain. And it's a, uh, a, a really accessible uh, exploration into this intersection between neuroscience and business. So it's written for the, the general interest reader. You don't have to be either a neuroscience or a marketer to be able to enjoy it and to understand it. 
Um, it's really a, a look under the cover at what's happening in the consumer world. So why certain advertisements appeal to us the way they do, uh, how our memories can often be distorted uh, through, through marketing techniques, uh, the decision-making process. Uh, really, it goes step-by-step uh, step throughout all of our different psychological faculties from sensation and perception to memory and learning to decision-making to our sociality to uh, subliminal effects uh, really runs the gamut in terms of, of all of the really interesting interactions between the consumer world and our brains um, at a very accessible level. You know, marketers are jerks. <laughs> I feel that so sincerely in my heart, man, because they they know what they need to and they know what they need to do to kind of what's the best way to describe this to get people to buy things. So maybe someone doesn't even think that they're that they need something that's being bought that they, that, that, that that's being sold, but they'll appeal to people's emotions in a way that then they think, oh, I need to have this, and then they get it, and sometimes they're like, what the hell did I buy this for? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that definitely can happen for sure. I mean, there there's definitely instances within the book where we we you know want to to point uh, these sorts of things out so so the general consumer is aware. Um, but also, I mean, we we don't come down too hard on on marketing and brands either because we do, I think, owe a huge debt to brands and the the amazing experiences that they can create by tapping into our our psychological experiences and so. It feels very, very different putting on a pair of Nike running shoes, for example, as opposed to putting on a generic brand. And there's, there's lots of interesting research showing there's something akin to a placebo effect, which takes place uh, once you are experiencing the brand in the way that the brand has been construed. Um, so I, I absolutely am cognizant of, of the manipulation that can take place. Um, but I think we try and take a, a pretty balanced approach there. Wonderful. So what kind of, what kind of uh, I guess, when, you, when someone is done reading this book, what do you hope that they, you know, what's the takeaway, I guess, a take-home message that you hope that they get from it? Yeah, so I think it's, it's really in their everyday interactions to, to understand really how deep these, these processing uh, aspects go. And so, you know, not, you know, when you see a billboard, it's not just text and writing and imagery, but it really is having a deep impact on your, your thoughts and emotions and behavior. It's tapping into uh, certain psychological psychological phenomena and potentially were designed around certain psychological phenomena. Um, and so the, the general take home that I really hope is that, that people just have a more general and enriched understanding of how they interact in the consumer world, which is, is all around us. We're all consumers, whether we like it or not. And so having a, a deeper understanding of these everyday interactions is, is definitely my, my hope for the reader. So with this book, did you go through a publisher or did you self-publish? And, what, what, and depending on the option, why did you choose that option? Yeah, so we, we went through a traditional publisher. This is Ben Bella Publishing. Um, and so it will be out for a little while. It'll be out in May 2020 through Ben Bella Publishing. Okay, wonderful. Why did you choose to go through a publisher? Um, a couple different reasons. I think um, for us, we, we really just wanted uh, a, a publisher that was going to uh, really be in line with the, the vision of the book and to help craft it and to make it even better than it was originally conceived to be. Um, and then the, the distribution power that a larger publisher has was, was definitely appealing as well. Yeah, for sure. Once the book is, is available, what do you have any plans on how you're going to promote it? Yep, uh, we'll be in uh, definitely some, some shameless self-promotion mode. Really, every, every opportunity I get will be speaking about the book. So it'll be um, some public speaking events. I'll be at uh, some big retail conferences in um, the summer, some academic conferences, uh, we'll be on podcasts, we'll be on 
uh, yeah, really, really every every outlet imaginable. So obviously, you know, as a professor and then even as an author, public speaking is related to to what you do. I'm guessing you 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 have to speak in front of the students, so there's public speaking there. And you mentioned you know the various outlets that you're going to be going after when it comes when your book actually comes out. Is public speaking all, is something you've always been good at? And if not, what have you done to get better at it? Uh, it's a good question. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely something I've improved at over time. Definitely something that uh, the, the role of being a professor, just as you mentioned, um, really helped. I mean, it's really unavoidable as a professor that you, you, know, you don't do public speaking. It, it really goes hand in hand with the role. Um, so I think, you know, for me, it's really been a lot of, uh, a lot of repetition. So um, I think there's probably very, very few people who are just naturally born public speakers. They do exist. Um, but for, for the general population, it really is about repetition. I think there's also um, sort of a big aspect of, of introspection in that ability. So being able to, to take some constructive criticism, being able to uh, sort of look within yourself, trying to find what your uh, sort of improvement areas are and to not shy away from those, to really approach those head on, because um, that'll lead to the, the greatest leaps forward in terms of improvement. Yeah, for sure. And I you know you mentioned that as a professor that you, that's, you know, public speaking is something you you typically would be good at. I wish you had told that to the professors I had when I was an undergrad, because a whole lot of them were terrible at it. I mean, when you, especially if you go to a research institution, they're there to do research mainly, and teaching is kind of an afterthought. So yeah, <laughs> some of them, they, they definitely could have been more introspective. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely the case for a lot of the, the R1 schools uh, here in the U.S. that the professors are brought primarily for the research prowess. If they can be a great professor, that's great. But, uh, you know, they're primarily brought in for, for research. So, yeah. yeah, for sure. When it comes to public speaking, do you have a process for developing your presentations? And if so, what is it? Good question. Um, yeah, I think slowly over time, I've sort of converged to um, a process by which I, I know just the right amount of information basically for each slide. So I think there's um, a risk at either extreme. So there's a risk of, you know, having each individual word scripted out and just memorizing everything and having your slides reflect that. I think you can come off as very uh, robotic and, and unnatural if you really try and get sort of the micromanagement of individual words. Um, and then at the other extreme, if you're not prepared at all, if you just have some slides with some words on it, you don't know really what you're going to say for that, then uh, you, you, you know, can, can you know, fall into, you know, the dangers of, of not having a structured approach to the, the presentation. Um, so slowly over time, I've, I've sort of converged on this, this general heuristic of having the general message for each slide. So you can look at any given presentation and there should be something emerging as to sort of a, a story arc. So this is how you're gonna start it. This is sort of the meat in the beginning and this is how you're going to end it. And, and at the end, these sort of core goals that you laid out in the beginning will be met. And each individual slide is, is sort of a step in the road to get there. And so knowing the, the main sort of meat, not down to the individual word, but the main message within each slide that's gonna get you along that journey. I think um, for me, that's sort of the general heuristic that I've, I've converged on over time. Yeah, you know what, you're, you're absolutely right when it comes to putting too much text on a slide. I, I, back when I worked in as an engineer, so I used to work as an engineer in medical devices and every now and then I'd go to conferences and you know, I'd go to you know, some of the presentations and Essentially, it'd be somebody would put 
just like you said, every word that they're going to say on the slide, they read the slide. You wouldn't even know what their face looked like because they wouldn't be looking out of the audience. They'd be looking at the slide. Yeah, yeah. Like the top of their head <laughs> looking at the screen. Or if the screen's behind them, you see the side of their head because they're looking at the, at the projection. But once you do that, you, you lose people real quick. You're absolutely <laughs> absolutely yeah, and I, I think you know there there's a huge opportunity cost there as well because they're there ostensibly to listen to a presentation. They they could have read text on their own. They could have read you know a pamphlet on their own, but they're there because you know the implicit uh, sort of arrangement is that you're connecting with a speaker, and so I think that that's really an underrated aspect of of a presentation is not so much explicitly what you're saying, but really implicitly to what degree can you connect with the audience? Um, because that's really the, the value of a presentation. Anybody can read something, anybody can uh, you know, understand text or understand basic messages, but uh, it becomes much more powerful in the information, much more salient in your mind when you're connecting with the speaker. So I think that's um, definitely something that, that needs to be emphasized. Yeah, for sure. And I know mean, a lot of those conferences I used to go to were more academic based. So a lot of, yeah. a lot of times they would be, you know, graduate students or postdocs doing it. And typically they're there because their their advisor said they had to be. <laughs> they, had to, uh -huh. they had to submit their they had to submit their research and they got picked for a, a an oral presentation. So you better yeah. get your ass up there and, and talk. <laughs> but yeah, that's 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 neither here nor there, I guess. But when it comes to public speaking, do you ever get nervous? And if so, how do you deal with your nerves? That's a good question. I think um, it's definitely something that, that happened um, sort of earlier on in my career um, as, as I was relatively less experienced as a public speaker. Um, now it's, I wouldn't say it's nervous so much. You sort of definitely feel a bit of the, the butterflies, especially if it's for a, a bigger um, talk or bigger presentation. So uh, last May I gave a TEDx talk and it's, it's a relatively it was thankfully a relatively small crowd within uh, the actual physical realm, but you know, it's gonna be film, you know, it's gonna be put on the internet. And so there is quite a bit of pressure there. And so um, for instances like that, it, it's not so much that there's like an anxiety, um, but really it's like a sort of an excitement and there's like an additional bit of energy. And I think over time, it's been really helpful to, in, in terms of the metacognition around those feelings, um, so you can, you can feel the same physiological response, but then you can interpret it in any number of different ways. Um, and so I think earlier on, you have that same, you know, earlier on in my, my career, you have that same sort of, you know, butterfly type of feeling and you think of it like, oh my God, this is, I'm going to tremble up there. It's going to be so awful. It's, it's like a, a very unnerving feeling to know that. Um, but now you sort of feel those butterflies and it's almost like a good thing. It's like, okay, this is getting ready. Now I have so much energy. I have so much focus. This is positive stress. Um, and, and we know physiologically that it really is the same, uh, the, the same um, acute stress response that you're experiencing, the same stereotyped uh, process, which is going in, in your sympathetic nervous system. Um, but it's really how you think about it, which, which, leads you to either have it damage your presentation uh, potentially or have it be, be used to your advantage. You know what, Matt, you are a glass half full person. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. If you go up there thinking, I'm nervous, I'm, I'm going to tremble, I'm going to fail, you'll be right every time. But if you go yeah. up there thinking, okay, I, I got butterflies, I'm excited, you, you got to just change your, the, I guess, your mindset about it. Ok't okay, I'm excited about this. Then you go out there and you kill it. Yeah, you're absolutely right, man. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think 
Yeah, and I think that's, that's a really important thing to emphasize, which is that, you know, you can practice on your own so many times and you can do it and it, it feels great in, in, you know, the back practice, but then you'll never have the experience of actually doing it in front of a crowd. And once you get that energy, that's the boost that can make it even better. Like you can never on your own when you're just by yourself, really give yourself that natural pressure. And so that pressure can be used to even facilitate the, the talk and the experience to make it even better than it could be when you're just, you know, by, by yourself. So I think it really can be used uh, to, positively. What was your TEDx talk about? Uh, it was on some research that I've done on um, storytelling and empathy. Uh, so it's called Empathy and the Power of One. Oh, okay. Empathy. Storytelling and empathy. Okay, cool. And so when it comes to public speaking, what kind of tips could you offer to somebody who wants to improve at it? Good question. So I think um, definitely the, the biggest thing is just repetition. So both doing it, if you have your, your presentation, you have what you want to say, you have your story arc, you have everything, just practicing that as, as many times as possible. Um, and then I think giving yourself as many um, speaking opportunities as possible. Um, so it, it is the sort of thing that, that likely won't improve very much if you're just sort of thinking yourself through it, if you're reading books about public speaking, if you're taking tips, <laughs> it, it really is, it's, it's not a spectator sport. You really need to, to get active and get experience in it. I think that's, that that's easier said than done because if you're, you're not great at public speaking, you're oftentimes nervous about public speaking. And so the thought of putting yourself in that situation is, isn't exactly appealing, but um, really trying to start small. So starting just with, you know, two or three people just in your living room and then, you know, graduate to, you know, 10 people and then, you know, volunteer and, and to give a talk in front of, you know, 20 or 30 people in front of a class. So just slowly sort of baby steps getting up and, and increasing the, the crowd size. Yeah, you know what, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I, you know, I mentioned in my intro that I have a, an online course called Teach the Geek to Speak. But I even mentioned yeah. in the course that, you know, you could do all the courses you want. You could read all the books, listen to all the podcasts. But you, if you don't actually go out there and conquer those nerves, nerves, or at least, or actually, I should say, get excited about public speaking, then you're, you'll, you'll never, you'll never get better at it. You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. And I think as well that, um, that would, that would be definitely one, one point I would say is, is yeah, just, just sheer repetition, sheer practice. Um, I think another thing is, is at least for me personally, really trying to focus on the connection with the audience is key. So um, once you're out there and once you're on stage, you know, even if you can get there a few minutes beforehand, just talk to an individual person, you know, see what they're like, try to connect with them. Don't talk about the topic, just connect with them on, on just a human level. Um, and, and that will really, I think, help put the nerves at ease and it helps really focus your energy as a speaker, which is not on the conveyance of all this information, but really on just human to human connection, which is, is again, really the, the, the huge value that a presentation can add. Because again, anybody can process information, anyone can watch a documentary on you know, YouTube, but it, it's really this connection with the audience which makes the information much more powerful. That's an excellent tip, man. And I, I fully agree with you on that. Just connecting with somebody and a couple, a couple people in the audience, and that hopefully that helps you make you feel more at ease, less nervous, more excited. Then you go up there and and you deliver. Absolutely yeah. right. So Absolutely. when it, so that was that was essentially my my last question. But is there anything else that you'd like to share about the things that you're working on? 
Um, yeah, so, so everything you mentioned about the book, um, I'm super excited about that. Uh, right now, we're sort of in, uh, in, in the, the back end mode because that's not coming out to spring. And so all the, the creative energy around these ideas are going into the blog, which is at popneuro.com. So I help uh, run a blog on consumer neuroscience, really exploring all the topics which the book goes into. Um, so this is everything really at this massive intersection of neuroscience and marketing. So um, talking about everything from uh, Black Friday sales to uh, Christmas gift giving to celebrities, really to everything. So it's exploring uh, consumer neuroscience through a pop culture lens. And uh, right there about uh, once a week or so, also post some, some talks and, and other resources as well. So I'd encourage anybody if they're interested in that general area to check it out. So that's at popneuro.com. Popneuro.com. Excellent. So this, is, this has been great. Thanks for making time to, to speak with me today. How can people get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, happy to, to be reached out to through um, the Popnero website. So I also have a, a Twitter at Matt Johnson is me and then at LinkedIn at Prof Matt Johnson. Okay, wonderful. Everybody, this, is, uh, this, this marks the end of the interview. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering is a public speaking course that's online called Teach the Geek to Speak. But always remember, do the course and then actually go out there and actually practice do the things I say that you should do in the course. Don't just look at the course and think you could be a public speaker now. That's not how it works. And to learn more about it, you can go to teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care. All right. Thanks so much, Neil.